The title of the second panel is Singapore and International Economics. May we now invite members of panel two to take the stage, please. The chairperson of this panel is Mr. Gabriel Lim, Permanent Secretary for Communications and Information. He will open the panel discussion and introduce the speakers. All right, a very good uh, morning to one and all. It's a real privilege to be addressing all of you at the IPS conference this year. Uh, admittedly, somewhat intimidating coming after Mr. Giorgio and many other distinguished speakers in the session before us. Uh, but I'm looking forward to a very, very good discussion because I have two excellent speakers with me, um, whom I'm sure all of you are very excited to hear from. Um, the topic for this session is Singapore and the international economy. And uh, I was just uh, having a chat with my fellow speakers, Chikun and Kai Fong. Uh, all three of us, incidentally, are pretty much in the same vintage, uh, post-65 generation. Uh, all of us attended school and uh, university in the early 90s, where I think we would all agree was a quite an unusual and different time. Uh, this was a few years after the Cold War. Uh, it was very soon after the concept of the Washington Consensus was set out. And in the subsequent 20, 25 years since the early 90s, there's been a period of remarkable growth and prosperity for the world. Um, I think various estimates pegs global growth over the last 25 years at three, three and a half times, uh, over 25 years. Singapore has grown maybe eight, ten times, and which is quite a remarkable story, and it's uh, something that I think all three of us have been quite fortunate to have been a part of that trajectory. Of course, there were blips, there were very difficult uh, recessions like the Asian financial crisis, there was obviously SARS, there was the global financial crisis about 10 years ago. But overall, I think it's fair and accurate to say that it has been a time, a sustained time of prosperity, of peace, and I think of uh, general growth all around, but especially for Singapore. But it almost seems as if the wheels are somehow coming off or certainly getting a bit loose. Uh, and I think uh, Janadas had mentioned some of this in his opening address, DPM Tarman in Davos had spoken about dark clouds over the horizon. Um, and true as they may be, nevertheless, I think on, with me on this panel are two of the more optimistic, most forward-looking uh, people I certainly know in my generation, whose job it is to look for that silver lining in these dark clouds, look for that pot of gold at the end of that rainbow, uh, and actually find a way to take full advantage of that and take Singapore take that company, take the organizations forward. Uh, so with that opening remarks, I thought I would introduce our speakers uh, before I hand over to them. I'll start with the gentleman on my left, uh, Chi Kun. Uh, first of all, uh, congratulations on um, uh, not just the promotion into uh, being the CEO of Capital Land, but obviously now with the Ascender Singbridge deal in the works, um, the possibility of taking over what will be the ninth largest real estate company in Asia with over a billion dollars in assets. I think to say that your rise up the corporate ladder has been meteoric, it's a bit of an insult to meteors. Um, but all I can say is fully well deserved. For what it's worth, I know, I've known Chigun for over 30 years, so I have the, I have the luxury of uh, poking fun at him. Um, it's well deserved. Um, you started off as a civil servant, uh, left civil service, I think, 12, 13 years ago, but in that short space of time, oversaw the organization of the 06 IMF World Bank, 
ministers' meeting right down the road at Suntech, massive, massive enterprise. Uh, you also, among other things, worked with Mr. George Yeo on quite a few FTAs back in the day. Um, and here you are, having now taken over, uh, obviously, Asia's uh, soon-to-be ninth-largest real estate company with the potential to be much, much bigger and right at the cusp of you know, building up capital land as well as flying the flag for Singapore in global markets. So uh, that's uh, uh, Mr. Lee Chikun for you. A round of applause to welcome him, please. On, uh, on my right, uh, Mr. Chung Kai-Fong, um, uh, currently the uh, MD, the Managing Director for the Economic Development Board, uh, responsible for attracting tens of billions of dollars of investments into Singapore, and until recently actually the Principal Private Secretary to the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Lee, um, someone who is widely known to be independent, creative, uh, unconventional, I think whose independence is possibly outmatched only by his sense, fashion sense. Um, today, much more sober, but still a bit of a rebel. You notice no tie? <laughs> new economy. Uh, new economy. Yeah. Uh, but uh, let, let, let that not fool you. It's one of the sharpest, uh, most uh, creative and brilliant minds in the civil service, and certainly a vanguard for the next generation of civil servants as well. Uh, the reverse is true for Kaif. He's been a career civil servant, but he spent a couple of years working in Shell, um, probably about 10 years ago, actually, come to think of it, yeah. uh, and whose responsibilities in the EDB now include um, actually really making Singapore that, or strengthening Singapore's position as that global city, um, attracting foreign investments into Singapore, creating excellent new jobs for future generations, and essentially making sure that we have many, many more years of success and growth and prosperity to come. So, my honour to introduce Mr. Chen Kai Fong on my right. So, with that introduction, I'd like to turn the mic over to Chi Kun to maybe share with us his thoughts. Uh, oh, Kai Fong, rather. Kai Fong, for his thoughts on Singapore and the international economy. Kai. So, I decided to not use a rostrum in the spirit of unconventionality. Uh, but thank you, Gabe, uh, for the introduction, and I look forward to... We are all good friends here, so uh, we are all joking with each other how we got suckered by Janadas into this. But you know, <laughs> thank, you for the, thank you for the invitation. Uh, I just want to mention that like DPM Taman and Minister Heng, I was at Davos last week, and you know, it's a useful event for us. To, you know, it saves us many trips overseas because it's the one place where you can meet your investors, you can meet various companies, and you can talk to them about the state of the world and the state of where, and you can sort of figure out where Singapore sits in the state of the world. And many of you would have read uh, Minister Heng's Facebook post as well as DPM Taman's Facebook post. So, you know, naturally, you'll find that there, there's a mood of dark clouds. Uh, that's quite clear. You read it in the Straits Times, New York Times. And the, the reasons are quite clear, right? The reports speak about you know, concerns about US-China. I, I hear we had a session earlier on that. It speaks about China's slowing growth, some concern about their growth numbers. It speaks about domestic politics being wrought by globalization and technology. And then we discuss issues on AI, automation, that sort of thing. So there's a lot of analysis and commentary around it. And I hope I won't disappoint you if I don't go into it so much. Because actually, you're better off reading all these reports than listening to me. But 
One event struck me, and this was a breakfast I went to uh, at Davos, hosted by a large uh, European bank. I can't say what bank it was because it's Chatham House rules, but uh, at the breakfast were obviously CEOs, central bankers, former central bankers, uh, politicians, just basically the Davos elite. And the CEO began his speech by taking a vote. So he asked a question, and we all had this voting uh, remote holding on to it, right? And he said, who thinks globalization and technology is good for society and humanity? Okay, maybe let me do a survey here. Who thinks globalization and technology is good for society here? Hands up. Not bad, I mean, and, and the numbers were about the same. It was a good 85%. It showed very, very clear. And speaker after speaker, people discussing the moderation, no, people discussing the topic, everyone said, you know, this is good for society, we've got to press on, we've got to open our borders, we've got to invest in technology because that's going to bring about benefits in healthcare, even for workers, that sort of thing. Then, one prime minister stood up, and this is the prime minister of a small country, and he said, you know, we all feel this way because many of us see the benefits, we are educated, and we feel the benefits. We, in fact, we get the benefits. But back home, in my country, the percentage will not be like this. My voters do not agree with you. In fact, more than half will say globalization and technology is a bad thing. I thought, wow. Firstly, wow, because it's refreshing that a politician is so honest, uh, even in a, in a Chatham House setting. But actually, it just reflects the kind of divide that we are facing in the world. And I thought this was very pertinent as we talk about Singapore and the international economy because we cannot afford to be unlinked. In fact, it's all intermingled together, it's interdependent. And what happens at home uh, affects the world and what ha happens in the world affects home and affects our economic policy. So DPM Taman, I think, put it best in his Facebook post on Davos. And it's worth uh, just quoting from it. He referred to dark clouds. In fact, he posted a picture of dark clouds but he pointed at the end of the day, he said, the biggest difficulties, let me quote, the biggest difficulties lie within nations themselves. People are now deeply divided in advanced nations that led the world for decades. Until these domestic divisions and the loss of trust in political leaders is repaired, there is little hope of fixing the divisions in the international order. A spirit of common interest globally and of wanting to resolve problems in a cooperative way will not return until there is a shared sense, a sense of shared interest among people at home in their own societies. Politicians of all stripes and businesses too need the humility to understand why ordinary working people have voted this way. And he said there was more humility in Davos this year than in the past. But if you just compare that with the, with the breakfast that I went to, I think there's still a pretty big gap for us to, to, to sort of bridge. But I think what DPM Taman said encapsulates the dilemma that all countries face, big and small, and actually what Singapore face, faces. And change is happening in all aspects of the economy, world, in, in Singapore, in, in workers. And I, I don't think I can quite explain the change so comprehensively in just 20 minutes. It's very difficult, and I don't think you should just listen to one or two people doing that. There are enough books written about it, but let me just give you a sense of what change sort of means, right? If you, you know, Janadas opened uh, this morning and he talked about how, you know, the liberal, 
it referenced Rajaratnam's global city. And actually, a lot of the environment, the global environment that has helped us is that we are the free liberal world order that has enabled free trade and prosperity. Now, that's currently being pulled back. Gabriel mentioned it, Washington consensus. Now we're on this state. What's going to happen? And that's causing companies to change the way they operate. In business, for example, you have now internet digitalization of companies, and that's upheaving uh, many old businesses and traditional businesses. Look at what the, the kind of companies that EDB chases. Huh? In the past, when we first started, it was on the premise that if you control supply, you control the demand. Ford famously said, right, you can have any car, so long, any color in the car, so long as it's in black, right? That's because there's so much investments that put into deep supply that the customer really has no choice but to buy the black car. So you control supply, you control demand. And that's one of the reasons why manufacturing boomed and we could actually secure a lot of manufacturing projects. But nowadays, and you know, the, the young among you will know, that you control demand, you start to control supply. You see that in Uber, in Grab, in Facebook, in Google. You get close to the customer, you own the customer, everything up the line gets commoditized. And that's the kind of change that uh, we are facing in this world for businesses. And it's a whole new business model. In the past, building a business means steadily building it up, controlling your cost over time. But now, there's this new book written by Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, called Blitzscaling. So you own the market first, you pour lots of capital in, and then you crowd out the competition, and then you figure out how to make money later. So fundamental business models are being challenged, and it's causing some rethink of what we need to do. And then you look at uh, workers. Right. There was one phrase in Davos, someone said, right, previously you were learning to work. Now you have to work, working to learn. And in a sense, there was a lot of talk about AI, about automation, and a lot of upheaval there, a lot of uh, concern about what's going to happen to workers who are going to be replaced by robots, by cheaper workers elsewhere. So lots of change, and you know, it's some cause for concern. So when Janadas referenced the uh, Rajaratnam Global City speech, she told me he was going to do that. I went back to read it again. And you know, the, the speech was given in 1972, and I thought it was remarkably uh, prescient. You know, it spoke about, uh, and if you try to bring yourself back to the time, in 1972, actually 1972 was a time when I think we were brimming with confidence. Because the troubles, we are starting to emerge out of the troubles. If you just recall, right, what happened just before 1972? 59 to 63, we had to deal with Communist United Front. We had to deal with all this internal turmoil. No, no education, high unemployment. 63, we had to merge in Malaysia. That brought uh, some issues. 65, we went independent. Another set of issues. 68, British withdrawal. So time, you know, year after year, there was a series of tumultuous events and challenges. But actually, if you look at 1972 onwards, things started to look pretty good. And, you know, in fact, you know it's good when MNCs start to come in. You know it's good when unemployment drops. You know it's good when generally the economy is brimming at about 10% or so. And what's interesting is, apart from Rajaratnam, Dr. Go King Sui also wrote a series of essays on this. He wrote a first book, which is called The Economics of Modernization, and the second book, which is called The Practice of Economic Growth. The second book was written, was compiled 
was a series of essays compiled in 1977, but it started from 1972. And one of the essays worth reading in there is his explanation. He, he said in the introduction that he, he's beginning to understand the formula for success of economic growth. And the essay he referred to is an essay which is compiled in a book edited by Janadas's father called Socialism That Works. And the essay is called A Socialist Economy uh, That Works. And I urge you to read it because it describes a unique model and it describes uh, how we overcame all those challenges to be where we are today. But that's history. And you know, I, I've been told early on that you know, nostalgia is better than amnesia, but it's no replacement for you know, looking ahead. But if you, and you know, to refer to all these past features, to refer to all these past uh, formulas, I think will be quite foolhardy. But yet not to refer to them would be also unwise because we have to learn, we have to draw the right lessons from them. And as I read through these essays, I was wondering, what, what can we actually learn? And what struck me was that it's not so much the prescriptions or the formulas, which will change over time, but it's the cast of mind uh, our leaders had, and it's the same cast of mind that we have to have. Because it showed that they were humble in learning from the best practices of people in taking advice. So you all know about Albert Winsemius. We took his advice, and that was against the better uh, wisdom of the time, but we took it because we, we felt he had something important to say. It was about you know, the courage they showed in bucking the trend, it was about the determination they had in pulling people together to survive. So Dr. Goh wrote, right, that Singapore political leaders had to assume the role of Moses when he led the children of Israel through the wilderness in search of the promised land. They had to exhort the faithful, encourage the faint-hearted, censure the ungodly. And I think, in a sense, that encapsulates the cast of mind that all of us have to have as we look at the economy going forward. You have to see the world for what it is, not what we wish it would be. You have to, you know, skate, in the, in the, in the words of a hockey great, huh? skate to where the puck is going, not where it is currently, which means taking bold action. And you have to pull together to transform ourselves. And I think it is this character that has seen us pass the, the last 50 years. Just look at the major changes we have to make, right? 61, we took two decisions that were really bucking the trend. One, instead of import substitution, we decided no-go. We will pursue export-oriented industries, and we chase, right, so that's one. Two, we chase MNCs because we saw that as a way to grow our capabilities, quickly upskill our workforce. And bear in mind, that came after just pushing the British out in 1959. So it was two bold moves that set us on the path to success. But it didn't just stop at 61, right? 84 our first recession. We retold ourselves, uh, made our labor market much more flexible. We've introduced new taxes. We've liberalized financial sector, ICT sector. So created a second engine of growth and we started to, uh, to grow. And time after time again, with the subsequent ERCs, Economic Committee, Economic Strategies Committee, we reinvented ourselves and we got a hit. And so, if I just look back at this cast of mine, actually, Davos need not look so gloomy. And it gave me three uh, insights or three reasons to be somewhat cautiously optimistic about our prospects. Number one, we are 
still differentiated and we continue to be differentiated in the world. Uh, we are differentiated in the world partly because of our geography. And I know Mr. George Yeo earlier talked about ASEAN and later you have a session about ASEAN. But I would say that uh, this is a big advantage for us to be based uh, in ASEAN. I was actually very surprised at how many chief executives are coming to Singapore, they're putting their regional HQs in Singapore because of the prospect of ASEAN markets. And these are not just the big MNCs, they're also Mittelstands, they're also SMEs, they're looking to come to Singapore to take advantage of the ASEAN market. And it's very clear because it's definitely, I think in terms of demographics, it's going to be the fastest growing market in the world, fastest rising middle class, demographics look good, young population, we have to take advantage of that. I was at uh, Indonesia night. You know, the Indonesians organized an Indonesian night in Davos. And the place, I think it's about half this size, but it was packed to the brim. And it's not just because the Indonesians serve really good food, which they did, but it's because people were bubbling with excitement over the prospect of Indonesia. And the Davos elite all showed up. Some even gave a couple of speeches. And it shows the interest. So what can we do to take advantage of that? We are right in the middle of the region, and I think we have something to offer. But it's not just that we are differentiated in the world because we are ASEAN. That's not enough, right? Because why go through us? Why go to us and not others? Not Indonesia, not Vietnam. And the second point in differentiation is that we are differentiated also in ASEAN. We have something to offer. We have more connectivity. We have talent. We have certain inherent advantages that allows us to play a role in ASEAN. So that's my first point. We are, we are differentiated, and I think that gives us some cause for cheer. Two, what also struck me was, actually we have a head start in making the next transformation, making a change. And we have a head start, I would say, about three to five years. One of the big topics that we discussed was AI, automation, and the impact on workforce. And in fact, if you go to Brookings, they just released a report on the impact of automation and AI on workers in the US. And you know, the prognosis was a little bit bleak, because huh? it said small US cities, rural communities, uh, the younger workers, men, working minorities are the most vulnerable. And actually, if you think about it, uh, we have spoken about this before. We have looked ahead, and we are anticipating some of the impact on AI automation. And actually, we did it as early as probably 10 years ago when we had the Economic Strategies Committee and subsequently with the Committee for Future Economy. And, you know, one of the prescriptions, if you look at the Brookings report, one of the prescriptions, they, they put out a list of prescriptions, right? And if you read through those prescriptions, and I'll read them out to you, uh, embrace growth and technology, promote a constant learning mindset, facilitate smoother adjustments for workers, Reduce hardships for those who are struggling. Mitigate harsh local impacts. Actually, it sounds remarkably familiar because we've been talking about this, right? We've been talking about skills future. We have all these schemes to help displaced workers. So actually, we've been doing this for a while. And Klaus Schwab, the founder of WEF, actually in some panels, he said, no, when you're talking about this, look at Singapore. They are doing the right thing. They are in the right direction. So I think we have had a head start. I'm not saying that we have cracked the code. I think far from it, we have to keep working at it. <coughs> but suffice to say, we have a head start and we've got to seize that opportunity. Thirdly, 
I think we are, the, the other thing that uh, sets us apart is we are holding together. I don't need to elaborate this a bit more, uh, too much, but you know, you look at all the concerns about the divisions, the left, the right, the extremes, that sort of thing. Here, we are holding together as a society. Now, that's not to say that you know, all is clear and things will look good because actually, if you think about it, there's still so much to do. And you know, I think Minister Chan once said, right, that, uh, that you know, actually it's very easy to come up with a plan. And many countries can come up with plans. In fact, you know, we talk about advanced manufacturing. Indonesia, Malaysia, they all have plans on advanced manufacturing too. So the key is execution. And, you know, what can we do to execute? What can we do to quickly to stay ahead and capture the opportunities? That's the key challenge for us. So let me share with you the five things in quick succession on what you know, we are doing for the economy or what we are doing as an economy to try to seize the advantage, taking in account the fact that we have some sort of a head start to begin with. And I'll just talk briefly and we can elaborate this. And there are five things. One, ASEAN. Uh, we spoke about this quite a bit. Uh, we have to get more plugged in. Not just in physical connections, not just in digital connections, but actually as a society, and I think Mr. Giorgio mentioned this earlier, we have to get much more plugged in. We have to understand ASEAN better. I was a little bit shocked when one of my young colleagues, this was fresh out of the university, uh, when we went to KL for a working visit, she said, this is the first time I've been to Malaysia. I was like, wow, how is that possible? I don't know whether anyone here has not been to Malaysia before. Hands up. I don't think you dare to put your hands up, but... <laughs> but it's worrying. When I uh, speak to some of the NUS students, NTU students, people that have gone overseas and all that, and the ones that have gone for you know, all these overseas college and internships, inevitably, the interest is always, can I go to Stanford? Can I go to London? Can I go to Europe? No one says, I want to go to Jakarta. Or no one says, I want to go to Ho Chi Minh, or very few, right? So I think, but I'm starting to get cheered because if you look at like Nian Poly, for example, they have a scheme where they send their students, the Poly students to, sorry, I need another five minutes. They send their students to uh, ASEAN countries to intern. And I think that's a good thing. EDB is facilitating it. But that's what we need to do. We need to get to know ASEAN better because that's how we're going to make our living by facilitating the connections in ASEAN. First point. Second point, more briefly, digital. We have to take advantage of digital much more and we have to stop bending around terms like AI, you know, deep learning whatsoever and really get down to the brass tacks of what is it that makes industries tick in terms of digital. Uh, and I think digital gives us so many opportunities because what was previously impossible, you know, impossible SG branding, right, is now actually possible. We talked about car manufacturing. In the past, it wasn't quite possible, internal combustion engine. Electric vehicles, it's a simple thing, right? Electric motors, software, and we have the whole value chain of semiconductors together with it, it becomes possible. Same thing with agriculture. In the past, impossible, need a lot of land. Now you have intensive farming, you have AI to adjust the environment. So there are many more opportunities that digital affords. What are we doing to capitalize on it? Three, innovation. Increasingly, we have to start creating new products, new services out of Singapore. You know, you look at the iPhone, right? Designed in California, manufactured in China. Right? That's the kind of thing we need to get 
into, and we can talk a little bit more later about startups, about SMEs, that sort of thing. Four, linkages, what I call linkages. And this is actually a formula uh, that has been with us. We have to make sure that our clusters are strong. Let me read to you something from an essay. We want our industries to be so structured that components strengthen each other, and we maximize the gains from external economies of scale. So from supply of components, we link them to effective training programs, which are then linked to R&D. Then in the long term, Singaporeans will not only man the technical management positions, but also contribute to product development and innovation. And this was written by Go King Sui in 1972. Right? And so coming from a person that's in EDB, running EDB, actually, I'll be the first to tell you, MNCs has value, but MNCs are not the only source of value. It needs to be a thick economy between MNCs and SMEs. And the linkages are not just about supply chain. The linkages are really about talent. Because having been part of an MNC, actually you are trained professionally. You learn how to manage. You learn how to run innovation programs. But when you circulate to the SMEs and startups, that's how you grow. That's how you expand. And we need that circulation in our economy. We, we need that thick economy. And finally, I'll just leave it there, inclusion. Uh, this is increasingly going to be an important consideration if we have to hold together. A lot of our transfers has been exposed. We have to think about inclusion in a broader sense. It extends to even what kinds of jobs we bring in, how would it facilitate inclusion? And that's something that EDB has been thinking about. Let me just end with two stories. Uh, and I was sitting on a panel of, uh, by Deloitte at Davos, and they asked us to express, are you optimistic about globalization and technology? So my first two speakers said optimistic, talked about the opportunities. So I had to be contrarian. So, so I said, I'm optimistic about potential, but I'm negative or I'm cautious about the effects. And two stories. One, I have a friend in Singapore. His mother runs a cleaning company that cleans offices. And her job is essentially quite simple. Clean offices, she has a network of office ladies. She calls up, says, hey, there's this thing here. Can you go clean? Takes a cut, and that's it. Simple business, didn't earn much. I would say one year, maybe 100,000 or less. Right, but it's a simple business. She doesn't speak English, running an SME mom and pop. But, so he came from a humble family, uh, and you know, worked very hard, very difficult, but her son did well in school, and the son got a scholarship, got a bursary, got a scholarship, went to Stanford, and you know, uh, did engineering. But one thing he discovered in Stanford was this thing called search engine optimization. So he said, okay, actually, can I use my mom's business, put it on Google, make it the first in the ranking? If you want to clean your office, you Google, that's the company. And next thing you know, in two years, they grew the company to over a million or two million in revenue, that sort of number, just by a simple search engine optimization. Right? Amazing. And it's, it's, it's even more amazing when he told me about how he was testing his potential overseas. So he decided to set up a shell line in an external country. And he advertised in that country. Next thing you know, the phone line got flooded, and then they had to reject people because they didn't actually have operations there. But, but it just showed you the power today of the digital space that it can empower any individual and it can empower any company to be able to take advantage if you have the tools, 
right? So that's, that's amazing. And one bonus out of this, that he, he did it so well, that his girlfriend, who was Vietnamese-American, decided to come over, set up a company here to do search engine optimization, and now employs people here, but also overseas in Philippines and Vietnam. Right, so that's one story. Lots of room for optimism. But here's another story. Two weeks ago, I hosted a networking dinner for a former chief technology officer of a digital giant. So this is quite, you will recognize it if I tell you, but I'm, I'm going to keep the name uh, private. So I invited other CTOs of digital giants who are circulating in the region, they are around. Some of them have cashed out already, so they are starting their own companies. And I decided, why not combine this with chief technology officers and engineers from Singapore startups, right? Get them to mix together, exchange, because you do this quite often in Silicon Valley, right? You meet together, exchange notes, that sort of thing. Now, it was quite good for the first five minutes, but after that, they started to drift. So you have one group of Singaporeans there, and then the other group are all the CTOs. So I said, okay, come together again, let's talk. But they started to drift again. And it was very difficult to get them to talk, to mingle together, which is very different if you actually were in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. And I started to wonder why. Then I observed some Singaporeans who stayed with the group of CTOs, and, they they, and I observed their backgrounds. One, they have either worked in the MNC before. Two, they have studied in like Stanford, all these elite universities, so they're mutual friends. Or three, they have worked in an Indonesian startup and they have to hustle and hustle and hustle, so they have no choice but to go there. And I thought to myself, maybe that explains the kind of divide. And what we have to do if we are to opti be optimistic is to be able to pull all these things together. The mom with the cleaning business was fortunate in that her son, enabled by our policies, was able to tap into this network understand the potential, and bring that together to a mom and pop shop to, to thrive. And I think that's what we need to do. We need to force things together. We need to have that thick economy. And then Singapore can thrive in an international economy. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, uh, Kai Fong. Uh, no worries. I think uh, that was a very, very thought-provoking and very rich uh, sharing. Um, at this point, I'd like to turn the mic over to uh, Chi Kun for his thoughts on um, Singapore and the international economy. Uh, thank you, Gabe, for the introduction and uh, Kai Fong for the uh, opening remarks. Uh, just a point of clarification, I uh, know Gabriel for many years, so a lot of things that he said about me, you must uh, take it with a pinch of salt. There was a bit of a, quite a bit of embellishment there. So just before I start. So I'm going to share my perspective at three levels. Uh, one at the country level, uh, company followed by at the individual. At the country level, uh, Singapore is often known to be a little red dot, uh, no resources, small population, no hinterland. But I, uh, you know, it's a, of course a, a very known fact that you know, we have um, not only survived, but we have thrived. And in my own view, um, the country has definitely punched uh, above its weight. It's done extremely well. Uh, as a country, we are known to be one of the safest, most competitive, and least corrupt. Our airports and uh, ports are internationally known uh, in the world. Uh, many countries are coming to Singapore to learn from how we are managing our reserves, our HDB, public housing uh, policies, 
uh, even our uh, things as basic as our education uh, system. And of course, you know, given that you know, we have always maintained a very neutral position, that's why we get the chance to play host to the Trump-Kim summit, and of course the earlier meetings between Taiwan and uh, China. I'm starting my opening remarks with some positivity about Singapore, about Singapore. Uh, because it's sometimes not so fashionable to say good things about Singapore these days. Uh, truth be told, we are actually the envy of many, many countries. And I know of many friends and people who would like to become Singapore PRs or Singaporeans. And some of them are very successful, very, very rich, hoping to call Singapore home. While I understand that uh, we do have uh, some Singaporeans who have grouses, whether it's about cost of living, about MRT breakdowns, I think sometimes we should see the glass as uh, uh, half full instead of uh, half empty. Uh, as a country, we are not done too badly. We are not where we want to be, to be honest, but I think we are, in my own view, better than most other countries. Uh, the fact remains that we are a small country. We must be realistic about the influence that, as a country, we can exert. But our ambition cannot be limited by the size of our nation. We need to continue to evolve, to change, to innovate, to make sure that we continue to stay relevant, uh, to be an important note in the global ecosystem. You know, so that we can continue to attract capital, attract talents, attract new ideas, attract investments into our country. So it's quite uh, uh, heartening to see recent efforts by Kai Fong and his team to bring uh, Dyson to Singapore, not just the, the uh, electric car manufacturing facilities, but more importantly also its corporate HQ. So I think we should uh, congratulate Kai Fong and his team for that. Actually, actually, we try to keep a low profile, so don't talk about it. <laughs> in fact, in a world where we are seeing a, a gradual breakdown of the international world order, where there are trade disputes, you see countries fighting for tech supremacy, I think there may be a role where Singapore can, can, can play, find a niche where we can continue to be relevant especially in, in, in an environment where countries, where companies, where individuals are seeking for protection, trust, and stability. So moving on to, to companies. At the company level, Singapore's market is just too small. For any company to want to be a significant player, we have to go regional, we have to go global. That was the experience uh, that Capitaland had in the early part of 2000. Uh, we started on a re regionalization exercise. We built up a vertically integrated uh, business in China, Malaysia, Vietnam. Recently, we announced the uh, combination of the business with the Sanders Singh Bridge, really to, to give ourselves the, uh, a global footprint, to make ourselves the largest player 
uh, in the real estate uh, in Asia, playing across the different asset classes and different markets. We believe that you have to be global so that you can compete more effectively. But globalization as a concept is, uh, sounds very sexy, but it's actually very, very difficult to, to execute because there are issues relating to taxes, to market access, to finding the right JV partners, dealing with local governments, um, uh, you know, uh, ability to transfer money freely between the two countries. It's complex, and different, geography, different geographies uh, bring along different types of uh, challenges whenever you want to think of uh, globalization. But uh, we have no choice. Singapore is just too small as a country. We definitely have to go global. The, the complexity about going global is that once you have made that decision, you can't just easily withdraw your business when you encounter certain problems. I recall that um, when I was uh, first posted to Shanghai, second month when I was there, uh, I was uh, quite fresh, quite new, still a rookie in China. I didn't understand much about China, uh, not, not much about, about the, the business environment. Uh, second month, I had a group of uh, uh, people in a crew cut hairstyle waiting for me at the lobby of the office. Uh, what they were trying to do is to threaten to get uh, uh, me to essentially agree to paying a higher contract sum for changes arising for uh, variation of contract orders. And uh, my parent, um, sorry, my family was uh, staying in the apartment just above the office. So these are issues that you have to deal with. I mean, you can't just decide to pull your business away from China because these are dangers that you feel on the ground. You have to find ways to resolve them and to still continue to operate in your business. The other example that I could remember uh, was uh, really in, uh, in 2011 uh, when the Fukushima uh, uh, earthquake happened in Japan. March 2011, I still remember. Um, there was a fear of uh, nuclear radiation. Uh, in fact, in several, com se several companies that were operating in Japan decided to pull out, pull out its team but uh, I was running the hospitality business then. We had our customers, we had our colleagues on the ground. We can't just exit. We continue to have to stay at the ground to look after our customers, look after our people, because it is part of our corporate responsibilities. I also recall having a conversation with my wife. I had my first kid then. There was, uh, of course, fear about nuclear radiation. My wife was saying, you know, uh, I told her I had to go to Japan, to Tokyo, to give uh, my team the moral support. She was saying, hey, look, we just had our first kid. Does it mean that you know, you're exposing yourself unnecessarily to, to, to nuclear radiation risk and what's going to happen to us? But I'm, I mean, I don't think there was much of a choice. I still went, but uh, thankfully, I still had two other kids after that. Uh, Globalization is even more complex when you start to build the business out of Singapore where the market is really, really small. Again, using the hospitality industry as an example, if you look at 
uh, companies like IHG, like Accor, Marriott, they had a chance to build up a huge domestic business, whether it's in the US, in Europe, before going overseas. Um, when I was running Esco, we had no such luck. How many properties could you build? What kind of income streams could you build in Singapore before going overseas? And even then, you know, today Esco has about 100,000 keys. You compare against the Giants Marriott, 1.3 million. Uh, and sometimes when I go to the board meetings and um, explain to my board that we were opening 30 to 40 hotels a year, it seems like a lot to some of the, our board members. But if you compare against our, my friendly competitor in China, they open three hotels a day. Three hotels a day, so it's something like 1,200 a year. So that's the kind of competition that we are dealing with. If we just do the things that we do, we fight the same old battles, how are we going to be relevant in the global stage? So, so I mean, it goes beyond just dealing with uh, uh, tech disruptors like Airbnb, Expedia's of the world. So dealing with traditional competition itself is it's tough enough. Well, despite all these challenges, my view is that uh, globalization is a uh, par for the course we have no choice. Every single company uh, needs to find your own niche, your own um, competitive advantages to fight, to compete, to go regional, and if necessary, could go global. Um, <clears throat> one interesting <clears throat> observation made by many people is that Singapore companies are not good at working with each other when we go overseas. Uh, as compared to people like the, the Koreans, the Taiwanese, the, Japan, the Japanese. So they tend to work together with each other when they go overseas, when there are contracts, they try to pass it around to each other to make sure that the, whether it's the Japanese companies and the Korean companies, they do well in the overseas market. My own view is that um, there are ways that we should do more to help Singapore companies along in our globalization journey the more we do, the better we do, I think it will really help uh, Singapore companies to go global. Lastly, uh, on, the, on globalization, I think it's important for Singapore to build up a strong uh, portfolio of Singapore, of global companies out of Singapore, apart from the usual suspects of uh, Charles and Keith, Brad Talk, Creative, and the stable of uh, domestic link companies. My, my sense is that uh, these companies here will help to extend the economic space for Singapore and more importantly, to create jobs and opportunities for, for Singaporeans and uh, for many people who are seeking for jobs. Which brings, then brings me to my final point about people. At the individual level, what I think we need to do is to make Singaporeans uh, more globally aware, more globally connected, and more globally competitive. Competition for jobs around the world is intensifying. There are many people out there who can 
and want to do our jobs. If we look around the world, there are millions of people out there who are, who are jobless, but very, very qualified, very hungry. They are, prepared, they are prepared to pack up their bags, go to different countries, learn the language, immerse in the culture, and more often than not, take up uh, jobs at salaries that com that's commensurate with the local markets. Uh, Kai Fong mentioned the point earlier about you know, encouraging Singaporeans to go to the difficult, um, to go for overseas postings. Uh, in my own experience, it's not easy to convince Singaporeans to go for, to take on overseas assignments, unless of course it's to the popular countries or cities like London, Hong Kong, Shanghai, San Francisco, New York, Sydney. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's something that we, we, we hope to do better, but uh, there, there, are, there are issues that many of our Singaporean colleagues are, are confronted with. They worry about how they could integrate back into the Singapore society. They worry about getting married. They, they worry about wanting to put the kids through the Singapore education system. So all these are real concerns. What can the Singapore government do on their part to facilitate this uh, ease of integration back into Singapore? Uh, issues that we probably need to spend a bit more time to see how we could help in the regionalization and globalization uh, uh, ambition. I was recently told by the CEO of a regional company that they have given up hiring Singaporeans as management trainees. I, I do not know whether to, I mean, I, I feel sad, and I asked him, what, what is his alternative? He told me that uh, he is going to recruit Malaysians because he said that the Malaysians are more hungry, they are relatively, uh, in inverted commas, uh, cheaper, and more willing to take on hardship assignments in many different markets. They could send them to Africa, they could send them to South America, but it's just more difficult to get Singaporeans to take on hardship postings. Well, there's no way we can teach hunger. What I think we can do is to continue to instill among Singaporeans the concept of uh, being competitive, uh, to, be, to, to encourage them to take the road less traveled, um, to deal with uncertainty. One good sign that we are seeing, at least, is that we see more Singaporeans, young Singaporeans, taking up jobs in the startup scene. Many of these start startups won't succeed. I think only a handful will really do well. But I believe that the experiences that uh, uh, these young Singaporeans uh, have picked up, the knowledge that they have gained, would help prepare them uh, for their journeys ahead in a world that's going to be fraught with uh, disruptions. We have to accept that the shelf life of our paper qualification is going to be limited. We have to adjust to new jobs, pick up new skills, switch industries, do different things in our life. That's going to be something that will, uh, will be given for the future looking at how rapidly the technology is uh, disrupting the, the world. Well, uh, I just want to conclude that uh, we must continue to grow, evolve, uh, build up skills, build up networks, 
global pers perspective so that Singaporeans, hopefully, we can continue to stay relevant, continue to be employed, and we can have the chance to pick up some of the top global positions around the world. How much we want to learn, how much we want to value add, how much we want to achieve is very much up to us. Uh, thank you for your kind attention and I look forward to the discussion. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Chiku. And I'm sure all of you will agree with me that it's, uh, the two speakers have given very complimentary um, addresses. Uh, a high-level perspective from Davos to something much more operational and grounded. Um, quite a lot of words from Kai Fung about the digital economy, the new economy complementing what Chikun has shared about in real estate uh, business that's a bit more traditional, but undergoing its own transformation as well. Now, in this question and answer time, uh, I'm going to give the floor some time to formulate your questions, and I'm going to exercise my moderator's um, prerogative to uh, ask the first question. And I want to challenge our two speakers by sharpening the debate a little bit more. Uh, both Kai Fong and Chikun spoke about a competition in terms of countries, but really actually it's more and more about cities, isn't it? It's not just about Singapore against the US or Singapore against the UK or China, but Singapore against London, New York, Shanghai or Chongqing, uh, Ho Chi Minh and so on, and so, Jakarta and so on and so forth. Um, if I were to draw on the intersection of that theme, Singapore as a city against global cities and the intersection of that with the international economy investments, how companies are looking at us, how we are looking at other companies and our competition. To Chikun, I'll ask you, based on your experience working across 30, 40 countries, uh, multiple jurisdictions, pretty much all continents, what would be the one or two things you would do in Singapore to make our workers more globally aware, in your words, globally aware, globally competitive, that's for Chikun and for Kaifeng. On the flip side, as you interact with companies all around the world who have their pick of the cities to invest in and the cities to move to, how can Singapore continue to be that hub, to be attractive, to be, as your friend talked about, how do we SEO ourselves? And maybe it's not search engine optimization, but maybe it's a Singapore engine optimization to make sure we are top of mind when people think about options, when, they, when companies think about where to cite their investments, given our constraints of land, of people, and so on and so forth. So I, I'll put this to the two speakers first, uh, while I'll, I'll invite the floor to think about the questions and pose them later. Thank you. Um, thank you, Gabriel. Uh, in terms of uh, trying to make our Singaporeans a lot more, more global. I think first and foremost, we need to embrace even more global talents into Singapore. Uh, they need to understand the, uh, what competition is about, how some of the different uh, skill sets, the experiences, uh, many of these global talents would bring um, to the industry, to the economic landscape. So you continuously push yourself to evolve to innovate and to improve. And the second dimension uh, relates to the, the Singaporean workforce as a whole. We need to be, take a more concerted effort to send them on overseas uh, assignment. In fact, uh, I just recently uh, uh, 
this, had a discussion amongst my senior colleagues that I personally believe that um, for promotion into senior positions, we need to make sure that our younger colleagues have at least a chance to, to work overseas in any markets for at least a good period of two to three years. Because if you never had a chance to work overseas, you do not understand the challenges of, of, uh, of the, the working environment, the issues that you are dealing with. If you are just sitting at a, at a corporate HQ, uh, looking at, at the world, looking at competition, I think that the experiences that you are going to bring in a world that is rapidly changing will be quite limited. Thanks. So on the question of what do companies see in us, uh, it's going to sound rather motherhood, but essentially we are business friendly. And that is something to be said in a world that's slowly starting to be a lot more insular and protectionistic. And there are a couple of dimensions here, right? One of them is, uh, I think one of our biggest competitive advantage is that we have trust and we protect intellectual property. Uh, that's really, really important, especially in this US-China uh, competition. There's an element of stability, the fact that, you know, because the economics of businesses have started to change, a lot more capital intensive, things, I, I said earlier, things which are not so uh, relevant or economically viable have now become viable. And so when you're pouring capital in, when you're putting technology in, you want it to be safe, you want it to continue to generate value. That's what Singapore brings. Connectivity is also important. We've landed quite a few of the HQs because we are highly connected, not just physically, but also in our network of FTAs. And the ability of Singapore to get things done is something which they value. Take, for example, what we are doing with autonomous vehicles. Uh, recently, we've announced or we've released this call for collaboration because it's actually quite simple, and many countries have done it, to put a couple of cars in some rural area, you know, drive around and, and pilot test it. But what we wanted to do is to integrate that in our new precincts. So we put out a call for collaboration for three new towns and we are trying to get the whole ecosystem going because it's not just about the cars, it's really about the infrastructure, it's about our laws, it's about insurance markets, it's the whole ecosystem that makes it possible for us to play. So we are able to get it done. And finally, I would say, uh, after all, Singapore is quite a nice place to live and it's a place that we can actually get talent. Uh, companies can get talent. And it's not just the global talent, but it's also local talent. Because when companies come here, they know that they need to employ and grow Singaporean workers. And uh, so there's a nice mixture of both local and global talent that makes a company special. Uh, so I was talking to, uh, this is no secret, I was talking to Patrick Collison, CEO of Stripe. He has two engineering centers, one in San Francisco, one in London. So I asked him, hey, how come you're coming to Singapore? Just add engineers to San Francisco. Lah. That's where you can get talent. And yes, that's expensive, but frankly, uh, that kind of engineers is the same price all over the world. And he said, actually, for San Francisco, they've reached the, the marginal point, right, where adding more engineers isn't going to create a, transform a transformation, a transformative effect on the company in developing new products. So I said, Asia is growing. Why not come to Singapore? set up a completely new engineering team here, develop products on the front end, and actually employ about 100 over engineers to, to do this job. So that's, that's our strength. And I'm glad to see that a lot of their hires have been Singaporeans. 
And that's, that's the kind of uh, attractiveness that we have in this region for now. And we've got to keep at it. Make sure that we're a good place to do business and make sure that we get it done. So just to add a, a comment, in my recent uh, dealings, I think because of the uh, conflict between the US and uh, China, um, we, start, we are starting to see a um, number of uh, business partners wanting to set up shops in Singapore. In fact, I've been uh, uh, giving some ideas to, to Kaifeng how we should take this chance to capitalize on this uh, short window that we have to bring more businesses to set up shops here uh, give more jobs to, to local population and to really, um, because they're looking for, for a place where we are looking for people, they're looking for a country which is stable, offers a, a place where they can protect their IP and I believe in the next five to ten years if we play right, uh, we do have a chance to, to make ourselves more relevant economically. So maybe, maybe just to add, to say, there's one thing that I feel that we have to press on, we're not doing so well in, uh, I spoke about it earlier, which is about linkages. Because, you know, if you look at Dr. Goh's speech in 1972, and he talked about the cluster, actually he said it will be bad for us if we have one petrochemical factory one side, another watch factory another side. So disparate companies just serving, you know, the HQs without linkages to the rest of the economy, without linkages to the region. And so one of the things we have to do better is to build on those linkages, as I said, not just in terms of supply chains, but even in terms of talent, so you have circulation around. Let me share with you one example, you know, just relating it to talent, right? So I was talking to one of the MNC executives that has moved over to one of our Singaporean uh, domestic portfolio companies, right? And, and he was sharing that actually his time in MNC can add a lot of value because in the MNC, MNCs are MNCs because there's a certain rhythm to things, there's a certain way of doing things, looking at strategy. I worked in two years in Shell, and those were one of the most uh, educational times in my life because I looked at how Shell thinks about going into a market, supply, demand, analyzing strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, that sort of thing. A very structured process to bring a product to market. And that's the kind of talent we need, not just for our Singapore companies, but also our SMEs and startups. But why will they join an SME and startup? They will only join if we are able to bring them up to have a, you know, fast growth prospects. To, and, and the only way SMEs and startups can have fast growth prospects is not to serve Singapore, but to serve the world. I think the Swiss do a very good job of that. You know, as I mentioned in Davos, you find a lot of Swiss executives working in global MNCs. And I think one of the reasons why is because you know, they are very, as what Chikun was saying, they, they have traveled the world. They have been in difficult situations. They are willing to take difficult assignments and they are willing to just put themselves out there. That's what we need to achieve. If we can have that circulation, I think that's where uh, the virtuous cycle would, will come. Well, thank you very much. Um, I'd like to invite anyone to ask the questions from the floor. I think there are microphones. Yes, sir, if I could. I think there's a microphone right in the middle. Hi. Hi, uh, my name is Danny Kwa from the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. We spend quite a lot of time talking about how to make Singapore more global, Singapore more global friendly. I wonder if I can invite the panelists to consider the opposite question. How do we make the global economy more Singapore friendly? And by that, of course, because we're a small nation, we can ask that question in a non-threatening way. What is it about the international rules-based architecture 
given how America and China are having the troubles they are, that we can help shape that would make for better, smoother sailing for the Singapore economy going forwards. Thanks, Danny. It's, uh, well, no lack of ambition with that question for sure. <laughs> um, maybe I'll ask uh, Kai Fung to uh, go first, oh, thanks. And, uh, followed by Chikun. Uh, I think, first of all, I am schooled in the old school diplomacy or you know even Mr. Rajaratnam talked about this in our foreign policy that we are a small country and you know we have to know our place and so but that said I think there are certain things that we can do to shape the global economy uh, I would say it is not at all clear how US China will turn out first of all uh, you've written about this Danny has written about this in his you know in many of the writings about US China's strategic competition being the name of the game it could even evolve in a technological competition where you could have two technology blocks. All these things, while in the short term we are able to get some investments, frankly, are not good for us in the long term. It is much better for us, make no, no, really, it's much better for us to have US and China being friends because then we can actually take advantage of uh, the opportunities in both countries. Make no mistake about that. But there are some things that we can do. And I think one of the strengths that we have is that we already have a very vibrant uh, business community with substantial investments by many of the MNCs here. And one of the things we have to do is to work with them to shape the global economy, to understand how they view the global economy. And even though EDB conducts regular conversations with them, I'm not sure whether we are doing that great a job and we have to keep at it. We have to understand not just what happens in Singapore. So if they come and they set up shop in Singapore, I don't just want to understand what they're doing in Singapore. I want to understand what are they doing in ASEAN, what are you doing in Philippines, in Vietnam, in Thailand. Then I can find opportunities for my companies and my workers to plug into those opportunities there. And related to that, that's how we can shape some of the global conversations that are happening in the global economy. So you saw Minister Iswaran, he released a, a governance framework for AI and ethics. That's one way to shape the global economy. Uh, we look at the WTO negotiations and, uh, just after Davos. That's another way that we are adding our voice in. So we do that, but at the same time, we need to understand what businesses are thinking about the region and how do we use them to shape the views of the global economy. That's, that's our strategy. Um, my quick response is, uh, uh, is what I alluded to in my, in my uh, speech earlier is whether we can get Singapore companies to work more uh, closely together. Uh, for instance, I mean, Capitaland is, uh, we've been, we spent 20 years in, in China, built up a, a strong network across different uh, cities, uh, provinces, but in other countries, let's say in India, I mean, uh, Capitaland actually has had very limited successes. Uh, if there are other companies, Singapore companies that have uh, built up a strong enough presence that could help uh, Capitaland or any other companies, that could be one way that we could build our presence, build up our strengths in terms of the um, overseas uh, market. Uh, and I think that if we do that, um, help each company along, we should be able to establish ourselves quite nicely in various uh, overseas uh, market. Uh, the other point to highlight is that uh, Singapore is always maintain a very neutral position against any of the big powers. Uh, and that in itself, if you use it strategically, can, at a company level, 
you can actually bring along many other capital partners to facilitate your investments into markets which may be sensitive to the originator of the capital. People still want to invest, for instance, in markets where they have conflicts, but they find it's easier to go through a neutral party. So I believe that these are advantages that we can leverage and build upon. Thank you. Uh, Danny, if I may, I'm going to exercise again my moderator's uh, prerogative. I'm, moderators don't typically answer questions from the floor. But if you indulge me a few minutes, I, I think that my own view on this is actually quite a simple one. I think the way which we can achieve what you set out is if we ourselves are doing well, and if the Singapore story continues to be a good one, a prosperous one, and a growing one for the future. Once you have that, then I think you have a reason for people to sit up and take notice. We have credibility when we speak anywhere, not just in ASEAN, but around the world. And more importantly, we offer a model where, which can be a useful reference for other countries, even if we don't go the additional step to try to advocate or to try to influence minds. And I think that's something that is worth thinking about. The issue that we face today is not just a, it's not a breakdown in economics per se, but I think a breakdown in a nexus between economics and especially politics, and I would say identity or the social inclusion aspects of growth and development. In Singapore, I think we, have, we are still also facing the same tensions as our two speakers have said, but if I look around and if I compare ourselves to other countries, I think we have more than an even chance of coming out ahead and building on this strong foundation. And I think that if we can do that, then the rest will naturally follow. Uh, next question, please. Yes, Hello. I see a gentleman Hello. on the left, if I may. Uh, thank you, speakers, for your very insightful Do you mind introducing yourself, please? Um, I'm Xiang Pin. I'm an internet IPS currently. So my question is that Singapore is at a different stage of development. Um, so we are no longer just catching up to developed countries. And GDP is no longer um, the very best proxy for economic development. So in 20 years' time, um, when you look back, what would be the key indicators that would tell you that Singapore's economy has really developed? Yeah. And Xiangbing, just to confirm, you're looking for an indicator for economic development, even though you, you also said that it's, just not, it's not just about the economy. Um, it's not just about GDP, so what right. would be the okay. indicators? Got it. I'll send it to the gentleman who manages over $100 billion in assets then. I mean, 20 years is uh, something that I, I, I mean, even at the company level, we don't plan so far. Uh, it's a bit too far-fetched for me to see. But Very I, worried when the CEO says that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the thing is, in, in our future, um, I, I really hope, you know, where we can have a, a country that's continue to be relevant, continue to be growing, doing well, um, and it's not just in economic terms. Uh, and you actually see um, uh, a country where the people who are doing well, and we're also carrying the, the uh, other spectrum, other people in the society, other strata in the society along, uh, increasing the, the wage level to increase the standard of uh, living and really to narrow the gaps within the society. Um, so that's really the kind of uh, society that I hope Singapore can be because if we can truly become a, a society of that nature, um, I think we will be attractive, 
will continue to attract investments, talents around the world want to come here, you have new ideas, and we'll continue to prosper, not just for the next 20 years, the next 50 years, and also the next 100 years. So to answer it, maybe simplistically, I will look beyond GDP, I'll look at GNI, gross national income. In other words, this is the inflows of Singaporean capital and people abroad, right, compared, so exceeding, I'll be looking at that, comparing to the amount of income repatriated okay, abroad by MNCs operating in Singapore. And I think if you look at GNI, if we have succeeded in what we are trying to do, which is regional integration, which is using technology, which is finding opportunities for people elsewhere, uh, we would expect GNI to grow significantly. Uh, actually, this is nothing new. This is something already predicted in the 1972 essays by Dr. Go King Sui. And it's, but it's something that we have to increasingly try to do to push our people. That's one. Secondly, I will look at measures of inclusion, of inequality, because what you want to avoid, and I think you know, if, you continue, if inequality continues to widen, you, we will not be immune to the kind of pressures that you see in Europe today or you see in the US today. So we have to do something to force inclusion, and at some stage, that will be a measure. Thirdly, I'll be looking at things related to creation of new products, new services, and that's related to GNI in that sense. Uh, I'll be looking at how many startups are coming out of Singapore, how many are, I would say, unicorns in that sense. I'll be looking at the amount of technology, the amount of uh, IP that we hold. And if we are able to do that in the next 20, 30 years, taking advantage of technology, taking advantage of regional integration, uh, then we'll succeed. Thank you, Xiangping. Speakers. Yes, over on, on my far right, if yeah. you could introduce yourself, please. Hi. Uh, good afternoon. My name is uh, Muhammad Hosni. I'm from Jamia, Singapore, a non-profit here in Singapore. Um, when we're looking towards the future, the role of MNCs, the SMEs, and uh, for the development of the future, coming from a non-profit perspective, how can we partner with the MNCs and the SMEs in this globalized world for a better Singapore in that sense. And uh, you said about inclusion, and interesting enough that you said about the growing inequality here in Singapore itself. Yep. So how can the nonprofits partner with um, uh, the MNCs and SMEs to create a platform where they can grow together with Singapore in this arena? Thank you, Mama Jusni. I'm going to uh, show you to Kai Fong first, and then uh, Chikun. Chikun has uh, Capital Land has a very big foundation where it does a lot of corporate social responsibility as well. Yep. Um, I mean, Capital Land has a has a Hope Foundation, where we contribute uh, X percentage of uh, profits to the Hope Foundation on a yearly basis, with a certain mission of uh, making sure that we contribute back to the society where we operate in. And we work with uh, many of the uh, uh, not-for-profit organizations, whether it's in Singapore, in China, in, uh, in Vietnam, in Malaysia, in India, to uh, look at ways of contributing back to the society by way of scholarship, by way of uh, building hospitals, by way of um, building schools. So these are things that we do, and I personally, I'm of the view that uh, going into the future, 
uh, it is more critical for companies to make sure that everything, every single uh, uh, project that we do has to be sustainable. We have to ask ourselves the kind of a positive impact we can uh, create for the society uh, and uh, for the areas that we are deploying our investment capital. It's not just making money, but it's also creating uh, uh, good for the society, social good. So these are things that we will continue to do. We will intensify our efforts at the company level. There is definitely a role, and it will come in different forms. Uh, I would say that I would expect the role of NGOs to increase and to be much more activist. And it will be uncomfortable for some corporates, but I think there needs to be a, some sort of a new equilibrium where people, where companies, governments, NGOs all come together and, and, and work things out. You see this most actually in climate change today. You know, uh, you go to Davos, actually everyone talks about, you know, Davos started with Sir David Attenborough giving one of the keynote. Jane Goodell was also there and they talked about the, you know, the urgency of climate change. Last month, two months ago, I attended a World Business Council for Sustainable Development Again, businesses are getting involved in climate change. I think that's the result of NGOs, that's the result of governments also listening, and, and that interplay is extremely important to be able to move the agenda. And it's all part of just, it's, some parts may be uncomfortable, but it's all part about moving together. It's all part about the nexus between economic, political, social. I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, we do this test for fun amongst uh, civil servants. I wouldn't say Tessa, we, we don't like Tessa, but you know this quiz, huh? okay? Uh, and we ask civil servants at various levels what they think. And let me sketch out this scenario. So imagine tomorrow you discover a natural resource, a super valuable natural resource that only Singapore has, and it's so valuable, it's like all in the ground, okay? And you have to choose three places to dig it up, right? So in other words, a trade-off. We love trade-offs in government, right? So the first trade-off, the first place to dig it up is the Central Catchment Reserve. All the more salient now, given that you know, we, have, uh, we are talking about water. Central Catchment stands for survival. Two, Marina Bay Financial District, or maybe Jurong Island, you know, our economic uh, areas. You've got to dig it up. And three, Tiong Bahru. I don't know about Tiong Bahru. It's not, not so much for hipsters, but you know, the Tiong Bahru, which represents identity, represents what we hold on to in Singapore, you know, uh, our, our heritage. How do you think people responded? How do you think people responded? Let's try, okay? One, Central Catchment Reserve. Okay, this is a very sensible crowd, I see. <laughs> Two, the economy, you know, CBD area, the Jurong Island, that sort of thing. Anyone? Okay. Wow. Three, Tiong Bahru. Yeah, okay. Yeah. See, this, those are the pragmatic civil servants around. <laughs> but the truth is, even if you ask civil servants, and we do this for civil servants, you find that while the un answer seems obvious, actually as you go younger and younger, people start to say, I want to preserve Tiong Bahru. And people say, I want to, you know, maybe we can trade off the economy. And you know, all of us at EDP are like, whoa, you know, are you serious, right? But I think there's something there that we have to address, which is this whole, if there's no identity and you're just a mishmash of different companies here, this is nothing. And I think that's what we need to achieve. And I think that's the role that NGOs can play. But they don't play this alone. They have to play this with companies and with government. And if you're able to do that, 
forge this identity, then that works in the economy's favor. That's why, you know, when you look at DPM Taman's Facebook post, it's actually about doubling down on our strengths. Right? While all these divisions are happening, and that's the problem in many countries, and that's affecting the international order, what we have going for us is the ability to hold together. And we need to be able to do that and evolve our way to do that. Well, um, time's running out, so I'm going to, again, I'm going to ask the last question, a short one, but just riding on Kai Fung's point about identity. Uh, as Janada said, 200 years ago today, Sir Stephen Raffles set foot on this uh, tiny island. Uh, and later today, the Prime Minister will launch a year's worth of commemorative activities uh, really to help Singaporeans understand this broader sweep of history that has led us to where we are today, over 700 years, uh, using the bicentennial as the occasion. Um, that obviously goes, cuts right into understanding who we are and what brought us here, in other words, our identity. But if I could ask the speakers for a final parting shot, which is, in 200 years' time, in other words, 2219, what do you hope we will be celebrating about Singapore in our, in our SG 204? So, Chikun first and then Kai Fong. Celebrate about inclusiveness, togetherness. Yeah, that's all. Well, I liken it, maybe just to look in history, I liken it to maybe uh, Israel. If you look at Israel, someone says they are first a nation, then a country. Hopefully, we'll be first a nation, then a country. That's what we'll be celebrating, a nation. All right, on that, on that very uh, a profound note, uh, just please uh, join me in thanking our two speakers, Chi Kun and Kai Fong. Thank you. Thank you.